All right, guys, welcome. Happy Saturday. Lots of stuff to talk about today, but I wanted to start off with just wishing my eldest daughter a happy birthday. July 30th, 20, 2009, I became a dad, and I'll never forget that day. My whole life changed. But okay, so we are going to talk about a few things here. And uh, let's see, what do I have up? Uh, Bitcoin price, uh, Ukraine, Taiwan, and Richard Werner. There's a lot of stuff to get to. Just as a reminder, I'm doing these daily live streams. I Man, I should count them up. I think I'm eight or nine uh, of 30 live streams in 30 days. So I appreciate you guys joining. Members can listen to the recordings of these podcasts, and I might release them in a batch later on. We'll see. But okay, so let's get dialed in and get started. Let's talk about the Bitcoin price. Now, I did just put a chart in the Telegram channel a couple minutes ago, and that's the Bitcoin daily chart. Now, I'm I'm a TA person, okay? I, I know a lot of people in Bitcoin and a lot of people in Austrian economics, and they poo-poo on the whole... Uh, technical analysis, but if they if they think the price of Bitcoin is going up, they're doing some sort of price analysis, right? And there's different ways you can interpret the chart. There's different ways you can interpret the economics behind it, the fundamentals behind it. And I don't think you can just look at a, at a chart singly and be like, okay, this is going to happen, right? But if you look at a chart and then you also dial in with the fundamentals and you dial in with the monetary theory and you dial in with the other things, then altogether, you can form a decent expectation of the future. So anyways, let's take a look at this chart. Now, the daily chart, we are forming higher highs and higher lows, which is very important. This is the first time that's happened since uh, the beginning of the year. It's the first time this year that we've had a period like this with higher highs and higher lows. So that's um, important to note. Um, however, we see in the last four daily candles, we have three green candles and each one is smaller than the previous. So we're seeing decreasing momentum to the upside and we also have a cme close back on friday so that's where bitcoin futures are traded it closed at 23.990 so if this we were to keep this price around 24.5 we would have a gap on the chart now gaps in and of themselves obviously don't mean anything but they are a point of common concern or a point of you know where people's attention consolidates around these gaps and people will set bids, people will set sells according to where gaps are on the chart. And that's why gaps tend to fill because um, it is, we're human, right? And humans pay attention to gaps. It's a shelling point. These gaps are a shelling point that people people's attention go towards. So there is a possibility that we see this decreasing momentum on the daily. We also have oversold conditions on the four hour and the one hour. So we could see a pullback over the next, you know, 24, 48 hours. Now, but going forward, what I wrote on the fundamentals report is I do expect to uh, make a charge up towards 29,000. Um, and that is because there is a gap in volume right here in this area. So once we get got over... 24,000, there's this gap in volume all the way up to 27, 29,000. And we tend to fill those gaps in volume the same way we fill gaps on the CME uh, futures because it's a shelling point. People look, people set bids at different levels depending on previous volume at those levels. They become important levels, right? And so I do think that we could see a, a significant rally throughout next week up to 29,000. 
And then I do expect maybe a couple weeks of consolidation in the mid 20s before we attack the big volume resistance in the 30,000s. But I do think we have bottomed for multiple reasons. Um, if we look at the S&P, it also is raging. Um, and Bitcoin is going to follow a lot of this positive sentiment that is going to be coming out in the next week. So last week we had a lot of negative sentiment with the Fed hiking interest rates. We had negative print on the GDP, but overall the markets rallied even with that. So the rally will set in. A lot of people are waiting for more bearish uh, outcome. But if you look at like historically, if you look at um, recessions, the stock market usually bottoms about halfway through to about two thirds of the way through a recession. All right. So if the we had Q1 and Q2 were the recession and maybe Q3, say, is a negative quarter as well. So we have a three quarter recession. Well, two thirds of that is, you know, July 15th or, when, or July 1st, whenever the market bottomed. So that that would make perfect sense that the market bottoms about two thirds of the way because stocks are forward looking. And recession is a backward hindsight label that we apply to things. So anyways, um, let me see where else do I want to go now with the S&P going up, I think we will need a catalyst. We will need a catalyst for uh, a big surge in the S&P and a big surge in Bitcoin. And I think we're going to get that fairly soon. Now, if you go back about a week on the Telegram channel, I started talking about all of these reasons that I saw a major, not conclusion, but a, a major turning point, at least, in the Ukraine conflict uh, about three weeks in the future. And I detailed out multiple reasons why I thought that. So this catalyst for a huge rise in the stock market and a huge rise in Bitcoin could be something, some major event that goes on over there in Ukraine. Um, Russia is getting close. They're making major headway in Donbass, and they're about to complete their special military operation goals. All right. And then in the south, there has been this huge telegraphed offensive. I mean, majorly telegraphed in every major publication out there in the entire world. They've been talking about this, this offensive in the south. Why, why in the hell would you do that? You know, so the, some of the precursor movements, some of the strategy leading up to this big offensive in the south by Ukraine, they, it's, it's already been pushed back and thwarted. So. I think maybe in now we're about one week into this three week period that I said, oh, maybe it'll be about three weeks. Um, we have about two weeks left. That's also about the period that I think Bitcoin could consolidate in the 20,000 range, 20s in the 20s, and before it pushes through the 30,000s in some major push. Now, what could be the catalyst? If Germany cries uncle, this whole stuff with Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. They're depleting their reserves of natural gas. They're heading in, you know, we're, what, um, halfway through summer. So, I mean, they're, they're starting to see winter. Um, I've also heard that the Ukrainians, one of the reasons why there could be a major development as well is because, you know, around this time of the year is when the Ukrainians actually are like, oh, crap, winter's just around the corner. And so they start preparing for winter. Now, this realization is going to hit northern Europe big time. 
I just saw another thing where Latvia is getting their the lever pulled down on them for for uh, their energy from Russia. So all these things together, I can see perhaps in a couple weeks, there's a major development on the sanction side, loosening sanctions at the same time as Russia says, hey, we're wrapping up our special military operation. We've completed our objectives. Let's sue for peace. Now, another uh, image that I did drop in the Telegram channel is this from Medvedev. He, you know, previous Russian president, I believe. So Putin, then Medvedev, and then Putin again. And Medvedev is still within the, he's high up in the, the bureaucracy. I don't know what his exact position is now. But um, if you scroll up, you can see this map that he leaked and it's pretty crazy okay poland is getting a lot of ukraine romania gets some ukraine hungary gets some ukraine and then russia gets pretty much the eastern half very very interesting i've heard a lot also about poland and ukraine now they are merging a lot of stuff because i guess the passports work they're kind of interchangeable now between Poland and Ukraine. Um, Polish citizens have citizenship in Ukraine or vice versa. There's something like that going on. So um, I see this could be actually a legitimate map that people are thinking about. And then Ukraine is just uh, a tiny little enclave around Kiev. I mean, this this would suit them, right? Because Ukraine is an extremely uh, corrupt or uh, administration and so you know being relegated to just a small thing around ukraine or around kiev that would be suit them hold on one second sorry that was my youngest he's uh i'm the father of four and my youngest is a boy so he is kind of like my pride and joy and um he was just asking me, when are we going to the pool, Dad? Because <laughs> we have a, you know, like a area pool that we go to. Anyways, um, let's let's continue this. Now, the West, another thing is the U.S. Uh, is seemingly pivoting to Taiwan, right? The um, A lot of the Ukrainian coverage has dropped out of the headlines, and now the Taiwan headlines are taking taking its place. And for those that aren't following, which probably everyone here listening is, is following this, but um, Nancy Pelosi, the geriatric crazy lady that is the Speaker of the House, apparently she wants, for some odd reason, I think she's 80, uh, but instead of retirement, she wants to actually go and start World War III over there in Taiwan. So she's supposed to make a visit over to Taiwan. And uh, China has made a very firm response to that like in rhetorically they've um, had a meeting with biden and they said you know if you live by fire you die by fire or something like this i mean it's it's very very strong it's probably the strongest rhetoric that we've heard out of china yet uh, on this taiwan issue so uh, very very interesting um so the u.s could be pivoting trying to get Ukraine out of the headlines because they know that it's wrapping up soon, you know, give it two weeks and now we can switch over to Taiwan and there can be something going on over there. So that, that does fit as well. So we'll see how this develops. Uh, we'll see what the catalyst is, but I, I give it about two weeks, maybe four weeks to see a big catalyst. And I think the S and P goes a lot higher. I think Bitcoin goes a lot higher. Um, bonds go a lot higher. So 
Now, talking about Taiwan and the Chinese response. Now, the art of war, you know, is look strong where you're weak. And so if they're really talking hard on this Taiwan issue, they're very weak. There's been a lot of stuff going on in China. Uh, I watch a YouTube channel called uh, China Update. You guys should subscribe to that. I've actually asked him to be on the show uh, on FedWatch and interview him, but he said no, that he's in China and that's too dangerous for him. So whatever, hopefully we'll get him on soon. Um, but he is detailing out all of this stuff with the collapse, the financial collapse over there in China. And it is picking up pace. You've probably seen some videos with tanks in the streets and stuff. There is up to now 300 development projects that are being boycotted for mortgage payments. Um, there is some like relief packages from the, the CCP, but they only account for a minuscule amount. It's like, I don't know, 5% of what's needed to patch this gaping hole in the, in the credit market. So um, I think China is facing some major, major credit issues, major economic issues. Um, they are very, very weak because they their country was built. You know, I just watched a video to, today about back in, I think it was 1987 or 88, China was 1% of global GDP, 1% in 1988. And now they're what, 20% or something? So they have been built in 30 years off of a gigantic credit bubble. All, it's, it's pure credit, and now they're having a credit crisis. So this is very, very dangerous for, for China. They're extremely weak because they're dependent completely on the US-led order. Um, keeping the maritime lanes open for trade. Uh, the South China Sea has, I think, seven countries that border it, and they all have overlapping claims. Um, and it wouldn't be so easy to take on Vietnam for China. Just look at Chinese history. They aren't very good at that. Even Genghis Khan barely made some headway down into Vietnam. So, or Kublai Khan, one, one of the Mongols, they uh, made some headway into Vietnam but the U.S. couldn't do it, and uh, the Mongols couldn't do it. I mean, it, starting a war with Vietnam is not a smart, smart thing. Uh, also, with the Philippines and Indonesia, all these places, they, they aren't pushovers, okay? And so China would have to fight them for supremacy of it, just their local sea lanes. And this isn't even going through the Malacca Strait into the Indian Ocean. Now you're talking about India, right? You're talking about the U.S. in Diego Garcia can do whatever they want in the Indian Ocean and, or the wider Pacific, anything. So China's in, in big, big trouble here. And I think they're talking very hard and very strong about Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan. I don't know if they're going to do it. Um, I don't think if, they, if Nancy Pelosi went, I don't think it would cause really any sort of problems because China knows that they can't do anything. They know they're in deep, deep trouble. And I mean, the U.S. is in deep trouble too, but China is in much worse straits right now. So um, that's what I have to say about that. Okay, let's move on real quick to Richard Werner. And I posted a few things in the Telegram channel yesterday. Um, of course, I, have, I haven't read Princes of Yen yet. I should. <laughs> but I'm not all on the Richard Werner bandwagon, but I do like his empirical stuff that he does. So he, what he did was um, 
he went into a bank in Germany. He, he's a German, but he's lived, he lived in Japan for 20 years, and then he lived in the UK for 10 years or so. Um, but he is an economist, and he came up with the term quantitative easing. Very, it's not exactly what is considered quantitative easing now, but it's, it's related. So he's, he's a pretty famous, famous dude. And uh, so he went into a bank in Germany. And he was like, hey, I want to watch your computers. I want to get some backroom access. Uh, we're doing this empirical experiment. I'm going to take out a loan, and I'm going to see where the money comes from, what accounts get debited, what accounts get credited, et cetera, right? Because I want to see how the modern bank works. And in his empirical observations, he found out that there is no worry about their capital requirements or their fraction reserve requirements, or you know, that no one did a check on anything. They didn't add up any sort of accounts and then say, hey, how much can we do here and minus some from this and square it with the accounting like we can only be at 90% fraction reserve because we need 10% reserves. None of that happened. All that happened was his account was credited with the 200,000 euros. That's it, it came out of nowhere. And that's exactly what I've been saying for this whole time is that the money is printed today in the process of making a loan. That is where money comes from. It does not come from fiscal spending. It does not come from QE. It comes from the process of making a loan. Now, he has a lot of things in his kind of his uh, framework, which I do agree with, like going back to more local banks, small banks, because small banks lend to small small companies. Large banks lend to large companies. And it's healthy to have a spectrum of banks heavily weighted towards the smaller banks, I would say, because, you know, like a pyramid, you would want smaller, more smaller banks and fewer large banks. And I think that would naturally come about in a free market, right? So you want to kind of deregulate banking to allow small banks to pop up. And the U.S. was very famous for small banks. And he, he makes the point that Germany is very famous today for small banks. And the EU is trying to get rid of the small German banks. Um, I think that's very interesting. But the U.S. also is famous for the wildcat banking era. You know, it's famous for um, having very small banks, many, many small banks. Then many went bust in the, the Great Depression. And so if I would characterize the Great Depression, I would characterize it by uh, a deflationary credit collapse plus the closing of a lot of small banks. And so what happens after that? Now you have larger banks that lend to larger companies, and you start seeing how that can uh, move an economy in a certain way towards more and more centralization, more and more uh, towards the high big banks, the high-end banks, the, the large movers and shakers that get involved with the politics, they get involved with lobbying that, that capture uh, the government and the bureaucracy. And so that's, that's a very interesting connection there. And, and I would say that I would, I prefer in, and I think it would be natural in a free market to have a lot of small banks. So I agree with Werner in that point, but what he doesn't do is make the connection between like monetary history and the form of money. Okay. So when you're on a gold uh, a gold back system or a Bitcoin back system, a commodity money, you have a backing to that, which constrains credit. So he agrees, I would say a lot with Jeff Schneider, where they are very concerned about credit creation and maximizing credit creation. 
um, and for productive means because you know at the tail end of a credit bubble uh, you can kick the can by adding debt right you add debt to a debt problem and you can kick the can down the road however you have diminishing margin returns on that debt right so you have to continue doing it at an increasing rate to get the same effect and it's less productive each time you do that so Werner's like oh well just dictate that you know have window guidance that's what he that's what the japanese called it and that's what he promotes is just have window guidance and tell them to invest in productive uh businesses what's so hard about that just have them uh invest in productive businesses come on now <laughs> as if it were so easy right that's impossible to do because no matter what you expand the credit into you'll have diminishing returns and it must be able to liquidate so you have to have a backing because if you don't there's no end to the inelasticity or the back, even the negative elasticity. So, you, you know, the elasticity just means how much the money supply responds to an increase in price. So as the dollar gets stronger, it should increase the amount of dollars, right? That, that's, that would be more elastic. But in a credit bubble, what happens with credit-based money is as the price of the dollar goes up, the supply actually goes down. And it, it exacerbates the, it becomes negative elasticity. That's a problem with credit-based money because with commodity money, you default to the commodity. And I've gone over this multiple times in multiple ways. So anyway, um, look into Richard Werner. I've written about him a little bit in the past and uh, I post posted a few things from him. So uh, check that out. Let's go into the live stream room now. What's up guys? Um, I'm going to open it up again now to see if anybody has questions, comments, concerns that they want to bring up. I'm going to leave the mic open for about 30 seconds. So that's your time to jump in. And uh, if not, then we will just uh, end the live stream for today. So uh, ready, go. AJ. Gar Hello. Can you, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Great, thanks. I just want to say I really just want to say what I appreciate mostly about your content is, and I've commented on this before, is your optimism on that the globalists are are losing big time, and I I really love those takes because nobody else is talking about that. I mean, like nobody, nobody in Bitcoin in the Bitcoin space is talking about that either. So I think I find that extremely interesting when you when you talk about that. I, I just wanted to say that and say that I appreciate it. All right, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm I'm very optimistic uh, against globalists, and I mean my optimism is a little bit uh, tempered with I wouldn't say pessimism, but it's tempered because you know I the example of a 35 year old male that still lives in his parents' basement uh, needs to grow up, right? And I feel like that is what the West has become, and yeah. the future is grown up, uh, you know, make a man out of that guy and go out, get a job and start a family and man up. And that is what the West needs to do. And that's what's going to come once we get rid of these globalists, which I think is, you know, they're losing on all fronts. Now, if you want another person that is optimistic, check out uh, Tom Luongo. You probably know Tom. Yeah, I, I've heard him on. Uh, he was on FedWatch with you. I listened to that. That was a real good one. Or once or even twice he was, right? Yeah, we've had a uh, Tom on twice and he does the gold goats and guns podcast. 
Um, he's a right. little bit more, he's a little bit more maybe militant than I am, but, uh, and that's funny because I was in the military and he wasn't, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I, he's, he's got good stuff and yeah, I'm glad you're a listener. I'm glad you uh, enjoy the optimistic takes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like I said, there are a few talking about it and it's, uh, it's really, it's good mental, it's good mental, uh, mental exercise to listen to you guys talk about that because it's, uh, it can be quite, uh, quite terrible at times. So it's, uh, thank you for that. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, if that's the only comment, question, or concern, I will end it for today. And you guys have yourself a great weekend. I will probably chat early in the morning, my time, uh, tomorrow. So that would be about, say, 20 hours from now, I'll have another live stream. I don't know what it will be about. If you guys have ideas and your members, pop it into the comments and, and stuff on the Telegram channel or hit me up on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. And that's it, guys. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye.